I know death now. I've seen it. It had no fangs. It smiled at me. And it was beautiful. Welcome to Pod Clubhouse's coverage of 1883, a prequel series to Yellowstone. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're discussing the 1883 season finale, This Is Not Your Heaven. Tonight's episode was written by Taylor Sheridan and once again was directed by Ben Richardson. Just a community note, please join us on Facebook in the Yellowstone 1883 and 46's discussion and news group to discuss 1883 and then the whole universe of Yellowstone shows. We've got so many to talk about now. I know. I, I still haven't made that change to make it 1883, 1932, and 46's. Maybe it's going to be Yellowstone and all of the numbers. Number shows discussion group. <laughs> exactly. And all the numeric shows you love. <laughs> right. We'll have the 4,400, even though it has nothing to do. It's not by Taylor Sheridan. Oh Any show that's like, you know, numbers from okay. CBS, that, that procedural, we'll just, it's all anything with numbers in it, we're going to have. <laughs> Just a reminder, you guys, we assume that you've watched this episode. This is the big finale, so there are deaths. We don't want to spoil anything for you. So please, if you haven't watched the episode, go watch it and then come on back and listen to us talk about the episode, discuss. We don't recap the whole thing, so we might leave out some of your favorite parts, but please feel free to reach out to us through Pod Clubhouse or Pop Culture Review, and we're happy to talk to you guys about it. Ongoing discussion. Ah, uh, finales. <laughs> Always a difficult thing in any podcaster or recapper or reviewer's life. How do you really deal with a finale? I got to tell you, I'm proud of us for getting this out in such a timely fashion. You and I usually sit on finale episodes for weeks. Yeah, well, it's because it's so hard to say goodbye to our characters that it's we've grown so and loved. I know. As soon as I started to, to say it like that, I had like immediately heard the song. <laughs> yeah. So I've podcasted for like six years and every single show that we've covered, when the finale rolls around, I'm like, we don't need to do it. We just, 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 just like, just wait. I have other thoughts. I need to think about this more. And this was one of those, I watched this episode once. I watched it a second time. I feel like I've processed most of what's happened, but I know I'm good. Thoughts are going to hit me next week about it and next month about it, about why this and why that. And especially as we're moving into these, like it says in the fall, we're going to get like a, a couple little episodes. We think they're going to be little bridge episodes over to 1932. I think I'm going to have more questions as we keep meeting these people, you know, like going back to this finale. The Dutton story will continue this fall. Dum, bum, bum. But again, is that going to be the additional 1883 episodes or is that going to be the 1932? 1883 episodes, I would imagine, right? I have to think so, yeah, because if we're going to have a couple of episodes to help us, I mean, we know we have some of those scenes from Yellowstone where we still have, like, you know, the James and Margaret with the two boys. James may be dying. 
right? I mean, you have Maybe James, dying, James right? dying. That was the last time we saw him. I think it's reasonable to use that as a jumping off point for some of these additional episodes. Before we start recording, I told you, I, I said, I think we could talk about this episode for three, four, five hours, or we could talk about it for 45 minutes and be done. Because plot-wise, not a whole lot happened. But it was an hour and five minutes. It was beautiful. It was a very long goodbye. It was everything you'd want to give a character the chance to say all of the goodbyes and all of her final thoughts. You know, one thing I kept thinking about watching the episode was our discussion last week about if Elsa died this season and didn't hang on to the additional episodes, would it be believable for them to get to Montana, get to Montana and for her to die there so that the Yellowstone Ranch could be founded wherever it is that she dies? Can Taylor wrap it up in such a way that doesn't feel rushed is believable, but also like moves the story, is 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 authentic to the story, feels right to the story, doesn't portray it, doesn't feel like he was just like, all right, we got to be done because I got other shit to film. And I think he did. I think the extra 10, 15 minutes that he added to the episode's runtime gave it that room to breathe, to be expansive. There's so much silence in this episode or just underscore music, no dialogue, so much scenery shooting. You really get to see... Elsa pass away from her point of view, and in particular from James's point of view. And I think that extra time was so well spent because it allowed it to feel complete. You know, when 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 they're sitting up against a tree and she passes away, it felt like a natural landing to the story to me. Did he park it for you? Did, you know, just in a storytelling way, do you find it believable? I do. I think that it was important to have some new characters injected into the story because as it was, it was difficult to come up with a way that they would actually make it to what we know now as the Yellowstone Ranch. But by bringing in Graham Greene, by having these other moments, by going to the fort, things like that, that you kind of were getting more of the story filled in a little bit and then getting some direction as to where to go. It was too complicated before that to think, like, how are they just going to bumble their way into just the perfect place? And so these were good little, like, pivot this way, pivot that way, head that way. That We got some guideposts along the way that we needed. That's a great place to start. Let's start with the Bozeman Trail conversation. This all comes about when Shay has realized all of this land, including the fort, belongs to the bosses of the men that they killed last week in last week's episode, the quote-unquote deputies of the Wyoming Stock Growers Association. The, their bosses, Mr. Carey, the CY Ranch, which, which was a real ranch. You could go to our Facebook page. I'll have uh, additional information about the CY Ranch. All real really did own Fort Casper at this point. So they have to kind of get out of Dodge and they have to get out of Dodge in a hurry. Plus Elsa is dying and they need to find a landing spot that is not this shithole part of Wyoming that they're stuck in. So uh, let's <laughs> listen to this clip right here. We had to learn. All this land's owned by the boss of those deputies we killed. His fort included. Go north, hit the Bozeman Trail. That'll put us in Montana for the winter. You think this place is wild? Ain't gonna take them long to find those deputies we killed. This whole country behind us. Again. Your daughter needs a doctor. What's a doctor gonna do for her? You've been to war, I have too. Three days, 
her liver either heals or it fails. And if it heals, she's got another week, maybe. Yeah. I gotta talk to my wife. I like that clip. One, because it, it points them towards Montana in a believable way, like you said. But it also, for me, put the nail in Elsa's coffin in a way that I appreciated. My biggest worry was that they were going to do some tropey TV bullshit. Be like, she's saved! It's a miracle! It really wasn't her liver. It was a dream. This speech, hearing three days, she either dies or her liver heals. And if it heals, she still only has a week. Was, for me, the story telling you Elsa's going to die. The rest of this episode, this comes in probably about 10 minutes into the episode, the remaining hour uh, or just under an hour of the episode was going to be us all saying goodbye to Elsa. And I appreciated that. And and I thought that was really a really good signpost narratively on top of being a good signpost to go to Montana. I also really appreciated the commitment to the overarching theme that this is a journey and where we all end up, doesn't matter if you're a character or an audience member, isn't really the point as much as it is how we all get there. And so from the point of Elsa being injured, which really for all of us audience members was the very first second we ever met her. We saw her get hit by that arrow. The rest of this was all just the how we got there and then how how it actually played out. For me, I don't feel like Taylor did anything other than deliver exactly what he told you he was going to deliver from day one. You are going to see Elsa, this wonderful woman, pass away. And how it goes on, the the way that they say their goodbyes, the way they treat each other during the goodbyes. We didn't have a huge fight between James and Margaret. We had words. Don't get me wrong. There's there's frustration. There's anger about the situation, but grief too. I mean, there's there's living grief. Yeah, right. But not like a this is going to bust their marriage kind of moment, you know. So it was important. How things are handled is so important in the, in those those types of moments. You're right that they gave this episode so much room to breathe. The sweeping shots of the trees for me were weren't like filler as you might feel in other shows. It was actually like the opportunity to just exhale because when you come back to the scenes with the people we're cutting off legs or we're or we're saying goodbye to a main character whomever it is like so we needed those pauses you know within this like you know kind of like a beautiful symphony like you needed the rest stops just as much to kind of breathe and then be ready to go to the next movement because it, it was just it was a lot for as quiet as the episode was, there was a lot that really did happen. Light on plot, dense in emotion and impact, right? I mean, this is the kind of episode that will stay with people. You'll remember the certain things that you felt, uh, a particular goodbye scene or the final scene under the tree or her heaven scene with Sam. Something is going to stay with you. If you liked this show, if you liked this journey, if you liked Elsa's story, this episode is going to stay with you uh, for a long time. Well, and as much as we're saying that not a lot happens in terms of plot, that only works if you only count plot as like big action moments. Right. But in terms of finding out where everybody ends up and and also going through, I mean, several character deaths, that is 
a lot. You know, for any given episode of any other show, one character death would be enough, but two or or more, you know, is like ah! right. a lot. Uh, one one thing I'm going to give Taylor Sheridan a lot of credit for because shows constantly fail to do this and always piss off audiences, and I'm sure there are going to be people that are pissed off for doing this, but he gave tons of closure it's hard pressed with a straight face if you're being fair to watch this episode and then say well they didn't resolve anything he crossed almost all of the t's and dotted almost all of the i's at the end of this and those few things that were not resolved i'm sure are things to be resolved in the additional episodes you know, I like, believe you're right. Yeah. Yes. I, like, I really, they did a year time jump. I really wanted to see the start of the Yellowstone house, the one that we see in 1893, right? They've had a year there. That cabin has to be built or, or somewhat under construction. I was really hoping for that, but we didn't get that. Okay, I'm sure we're going to see that in the next clips, that house. Maybe not at the very beginning of it being built, but I don't need to see the foundation. <laughs> you know, but I, I mean, if you're being right. a completist, right? If you're like, I want the entire, every ounce of what these people did for a year, what did they eat on day three, you know, then then that's <laughs> a thing. But I don't know how you watch this and be like, what happened to so-and-so? Oh, well, we know exactly what happened to them. Everyone was accounted for, even the poor separatist pioneers. Yes. Well, and I want to remind all of our audience members that because this is a show within a way larger timeline, a lot of people may have just stumbled upon 1883 and started watching it, having never watched Yellowstone, having never really been invested in where we're going with this story. So for you guys who are listening, I want to give you guys sort of that that heads up that this was just a period of time in the much larger Dutton story that a lot of us Yellowstone watchers already are so invested in. And we were okay, I think you and I coming in, that we were just going to get snippets along the timeline, filling in some blanks of the Dutton story. We weren't going to get like how you were saying, like the day to day, the every second, like that's not how family stories and histories are told. They're just told in these chunks of like, this was a significant moment in our family's history right here, right now, this particular period of time. And they wrapped it up. You're right as much as you possibly can but there's no way there's not like and some of these threads continue to other years because you know that's how life works so i was completely satisfied with the the completion of this segment of time story i get the foundation of why we ended up where we are and why there's such commitment to this particular land why the family is like this is where we stay they repeated where where she dies where we bury her is where we stay they repeated it again i mean i'll play the clip it's they restated it here and i think they it had even more impact than we when we heard it Last week, because I think when we heard it last week, James and Margaret were at the very early stages of acknowledging that Elsa was going to die. And they were talking, but not in a way where her death had weight or as much weight yet, because it wasn't as real. When they had that conversation to, in tonight's episode, it has weight because her death is now looming. It is coming. It is inevitable. So this conversation feels more serious in a way, even though it is almost a re an exact repeat of the last conversation. What would First, we also have to say that I'm going to begin using walk with me whenever I have bad news to break to someone or a difficult conversation. <laughs> I'm going to go out and be like, walk with me. The James, is, <laughs> James has trained me. That is the effective way to introduce code wise. We have something serious to talk about. 
Sometimes it's easier to say something hard while you're looking straight forward and not at the person's face. So walking works for that. 100%. Well, walk with me, guys. Let's listen to this clip. Walk with me. John, go check on your sister. We can't wait it out here. Why not? Doesn't matter why, we just can't. And no doctor can help her. Nobody can. And we ain't gonna lay her to rest here. We keep heading north. Where she dies is where we stay. She'll be with us. And you can visit her anytime you want. No, oh, I'll be there every day. Until you put me in the ground right beside her. This episode did a lot of work connecting 1883 to Yellowstone. There have been Easter eggs throughout the season, but this episode very much was was a connector episode. And this idea that all the Duttons get buried within 300 you know, feet of John's front door, Kevin Costner, John Dutton's front door, or 300 yards from his front door... That's established here. I'm going to I'm going to visit her grave every day on our property until you put me in the ground right next to her. That's important. That's an important thing. If you're invested in the Yellowstone universe, the Dutton's universe, not just Elsa's story, not just James or Margaret's story, not just Shay's story, but this universe, this is an important clip for them to play and for them to have that conversation, I thought. There's a couple of things in this episode that actually set us up for the whys of what's going on in current day Yellowstone. It gives us some background and, and gives us a ton of foreshadowing. Let's talk about the seven generations of Duttons and the Native Americans and Paradise Valley. Maybe the single most important audio clip of this series for fans of Yellowstone or for fans of the overall mythology probably happens in this in this episode. You want let's listen to the clip and then we'll talk about it. Does that sound good? Yes. I know a place for you. You go through that pass and you follow the river south. I used to hunt that valley as a boy. And the winters are cruel. But the summers are rich and a man who plans can thrive. And you look like a man who plans. What's the valley called? I don't know the word in your language, but it's... Uh, when you die, you... Uh, you go there. Heaven. No, there's another word. It's not it. Paradise. Yes. Paradise. Yeah. Good name. But you know this. That in seven generations, my people will rise up and take it back from you. In seven generations, you can have it. Someday, my family might seek to hunt that valley. And if they do, you remember me. And you let them. Your family can hunt the day I get there and every day after. Good. 
There's something so calming about Graham Greene's voice. Oh, my God. That makes me feel can... like he's so wise. And, you know, for us, I think being kids of, you know, 80s and 90s, that Dances with Wolves connection between Graham Greene and Kevin Costner hits like extra home. I don't know if it will for everybody, but I feel like for us, for our generation of kids, it does. Um, and you just want to listen to him and be like, yes, yes, we should do everything he says. <laughs> like an ASMR video. He's, you know, it's, it's, it's just very comforting his voice. Even his introduction, uh, you know, I, I have the clip, but we don't need to play it really. But I, I recorded it really just because it was so gentle and calming. And he's talking to Shay about, oh, she's hurt, you know, and like, you know, we have to yeah. get like a doctor for her kind of thing. And like selflessly, he doesn't know that this has not been the experience generally that they have had with the Native Americans. Yes, the Comanches didn't attack them, but it was transactional and it was it was much more aggressive even than this. This is just super peaceful and th th there's a young woman here and she's hurt and we can help and let us try. And and he jokes with Elsa in the clip, it must have been some kind of war. And she's like, oh, it was yeah. a great one. You know, like just very, <laughs> yeah. I mean, what a great introduction for Spotted Eagle. So sweet, so grandfatherly, so just like you trust everything he says. Like I have no doubt that James and Elsa are going to get exactly where Spotted Eagle tells them to go because I have no doubt that his his like goodwill will like protect them all the way there. Yeah. He's that like powerful for me as a, both a character but just his voice. So let's talk a little bit about the ramifications for this because this is an important thing for fans of Yellowstone, but it's an important thing for the Duttons. So whether you're, you may never even seen an episode of Yellowstone, you don't care about it, that's fine. This is important for James and Margaret and for the family and world that they set out on this journey, that they left Tennessee for, that they went to Fort Worth, that they traveled all the way north for, that they're daughter died for that claire and mary abel died for it's for this land in paradise valley so in yellowstone the duttons live next to yellowstone on one side and on the other side it is the confederated tribes of broken rock uh, reservation currently being run by their chief thomas rainwater but it's a confederation of tribes the show yellowstone has never said what tribes actually are making up that confederation of tribes but Spotted Eagle here is playing a crow. He is a crow. He's a crow Indian. They are chanting in crow. The subtitles even tell us that they're chanting and talking in crow. His headdress is uh, is that of a crow uh, native. So this, this is a crow tribe that they have now interacted with that is directing them to Paradise Valley. And the crow as a nation has a large reservation in Montana. Their, their center of their population is in Montana. So it makes sense. So it is interesting. And my guess would be, and maybe we'll find this out in season five of Yellowstone, one of the tribes that make up the confederated tribes of Broken Rock involve crow descendants, if not crow people themselves, because it makes sense, right? It, it's, it, it's just narratively, it makes sense. It also seems to me that my guess would be in that 1893 uh, flashback we got in the first episode of season four of Yellowstone, the unseen dying father, probably Spotted Eagle or someone related to him. I, I think 
so. I think because he says something about having hunted there, you know, as a boy. And then there's so there's that connection. And, and it, you know, reminds us again when we have that little flash. And it's from you have to watch the Yellowstone to, to see that part. Yeah, I mean, that was the connection I was getting. And I think get into our seven generations, because that's something that a lot of people are definitely confused about and trying to piece it together. And here's the thing. If you're an audience member who's like, I do not understand how many generations we are removed from the current day Duttons. You have all the reason in the world because there has been so much conflicting information on the internet, on the wiki sites, on in different articles. The only person that we have decided to follow on this is Taylor Sheridan himself. While we understand that there are some, we will say, consistency issues in some of the scripting, but this was in an interview when he talked about this on the Road West. James is John's great, great, great grandfather. Now that's straight from him. <laughs> so we understand that, you know, every other article over different points of the season have listed it as anything from great grandfather, great, great grandfather. And then some reference the great, great, great grandfather that Taylor Sheridan mentions here. So we are following Taylor Sheridan's interview in the Road West. And if you're taking that people and these pioneer fa pioneer families had at least their first child young, I mean, look at Margaret and James, right? She was pregnant at 17, 18 when she had Elsa. Go by an 18-year-old for your first kid. The math actually works out really well without a lot of finagling. But a generation is typically, in the abstract, a generation is understood to be 20 years. When you're talking specific genealogy, your generation is each level of kids. Stick with me here. I know this is an this is an auditory thing, so it's hard to visualize, but we'll have it up on the Facebook group. I'll make a like a little chart. James and Margaret are the first generation. Their kids would be the second generation. So that is Elsa, that is John. And if Spencer, who we only saw in a flashback in Yellowstone season four, turns out to be a third child, then he is the third child of that second generation. Let's follow little John. For simplicity's sake, he's a kid that's alive. We know about him. When John, little John, grows up and has a kid, that child will be the third generation, and James will be his grandfather. When John's son has a, has a kid, James will be that child's great-grandfather. When that kid has a kid, James will be that kid's great-great-grandfather. That will be Dabney Coleman, John Dutton. When Dabney Coleman John Dutton has Kevin Costner John Dutton, that makes James his great-great-great-grandfather, and that makes Kevin Costner the sixth generation of Duttons. So where do we get seven generations? Well, John Dutton and his wife had kids. They had Lee, they had Casey, they had Beth, Jamie. We wa I actually rewatched the first episode of Yellowstone, but in the first episode, they established that Lee is 38 in 2018. So that has Lee being as the oldest child. He is born in 1980. So just putting the time together, that makes the Casey, Lee, Beth generation the seventh generation of Duttons and is also the generation now at which the Broken Rock Reservation, the Confederated Tribes of Broken Rock, are now fighting to get the land back from John Dutton. Almost like a prophecy, whether it was written down by Spotted Eagle for all of his descendants to see, or if it was just some kind of prophecy that he's making in this episode, 
it's come to pass, and it has come to pass at the seventh generation. Now, there is a, an eighth generation, and that is who, Caroline? Because this is your theory. I want you to explain <laughs> it for those people that didn't listen to our Yellowstone season. Which we have great hosts over there, Sheila and Steph, um, and we thank them so much for their coverage for Pod Clubhouse. I was just a guest on this one episode, and for some reason, we got on this topic of what is going to happen with the ranch. Like, what's the end game for here? Really, without very much information going on, I would just said, I really think that Tate is the one who's bringing together both sides of the sort of like the white man plus the Native Americans coming together in one person. And we have this opportunity with Tate to finally figure out a way to put land back with the Broken Rock tribe and then also retain, you know, the Dutton traditions, if you will. I really latched onto that theory with nothing to go on. So when Spotted Eagle said that seven generations, my little heart was like, oh, what? Like, I know I started doing the same exact thing you did, which is like start counting on my fingers as quickly as possible. Like how many, <laughs> how many generations are we and where are we at? And when I realized like Tate is the obvious one, the seventh generation now is starting the struggle between like the push and the pull on this land so hard. But the eighth generation is where I think we can see some peace. And really, there's a lot that happened with Casey that makes me feel like, you know, his conversation about what was happening with the land, you guys, if you're remembering, if you are watching in that finale, uh, there's so much going on there that is making me feel like, wow, they really tied this all together so very well. So much of season four of Yellowstone was done with 1883 in mind. And 1883 definitely had season four of Yellowstone in mind. Over the course of the series of Yellowstone, John Dutton and, and the show have dropped hints or have said things about the history of the ranch. They have alluded to why or that the ranch and the land that it sits on is more important to them than just normal attachment to your property. It, it holds a special place to them, as have the uh, Confederated Tribes of Broken Rock. It, who has the right to the land? Whose land does this belong to? Does anyone have a right to the land? And if so, who? Is a, is a persisting conflict in the show. That, I don't think it's a spoiler to say. It's, it's about, it's an overarching theme of the show. Season four really started to get down into the history, at least from the Dutton side. There was a lot of talk from John Dutton about his forebears without being so overly specific, but just talking about the general sense of the Duttons are rooted in this. When Spotted Eagle says to James, you look like a man who likes to plant. Um, I laughed because the Duttons are, certainly are planted in the land of Paradise Valley. I mean, it is a, it is a metaphor of for the ages for him to say that James Dutton is a man that likes to plant. He has literally planted 140 <laughs> years of history in this land, you know? Tate's father is a Dutton and his mother is a member of the Broken Rock Reservation. He has the blood of both of the people who lay claim to this land flowing in him. That's why it is so important to pay attention to this clip from Spotted Eagle and to think about all of the things that are going on in Yellowstone. This is not the Yellowstone podcast. We have a separate Yellowstone podcast, but it's important. It's important to understand why this warning from Spotted Eagle after telling him where he can set up his family is so important. James says 
after separate generations, you can have it back. He's kind of yeah. flippant about that. I don't know that he was thought he was making any kind of contract or formal pact when he said, you can have it back. I think he was just being so thankful that he could take his daughter somewhere to die. I don't know that he was thinking through the ramifications of seven generations <laughs> from now. Yeah, but man, I don't know. You're a lawyer. I mean, was that a verbal contract between the two of them? No. You don't think so? Even no. though he was, even though Spotted Eagle was like, good, I, I hope you remember me. Like, you don't think that there was like some sort of agreement there? No, that locked, that, no, no, it lacked all, <laughs> it lacked almost all of the components of binding contract. Obviously, the crow and Spotted Eagle and his descendants took very seriously. But again, I'm mm -hmm. not sure, is Spotted Eagle making a prophecy there? Or is he just saying, this is our standard deal? Like, we say you can live on this land for generations. And then, you know, like, we've got scrolls. <laughs> upon scrolls of people that were going to come fucking like you know mess up and try and take their land back after center generations seven is such a, an interesting number it is it is so far removed from number. the person standing there seems like why wouldn't they instantly agree like gosh sure seven generations from now burp, go ahead that's exactly james's reaction he's like seven generations i'm, I'm trying i'm trying not to get my daughter dead here you know like i don't want i don't want my daughter dead here I, he's i mean remember james right before that james says other if i don't find a place to put her for her to die, I'm going to be living in the sagebrush with you, Spotted Eagle. Like, James just wants to get going somewhere. He's not thinking about seven generations from now, which is funny because all the Duttons do in the modern day is look backwards. It'll look back in their seven generations. So I, really interesting. I think it's so, so important for the story of the Duttons and the land and this overall universe that Taylor Sheridan is building. Maybe not so important to Elsa's story, maybe not so important to the specific characters in this show, but uber, uber important to the Duttons. It's not Elsa's timeline. It's not the story of Elsa. It's the Dutton story. We did get so immersed in this tiny little family of James and Margaret and Elsa and tiny John that walking away from them now feels like this is wrong. You know, on all accounts, this is wrong. But we have to remember we're on a much larger journey, Mike. It is all about this long journey. It is much, uh, very much about the long journey. I think it also helps explain why James is so cool to allow the to bury the father in the 1893 flashback because it's only been 10 years since he had this conversation so i think he could still remember one day my family may show up to hunt on your land this feels like that falls in that category bury spotted eagle or one of his descendants or one of his relatives on the land is very similar to you allow us you're going to allow us to hunt on your land if we show up and james is not a confrontational person remember what he says to the comanche when he's looking at the conquistador helmet you know he he tries very hard to make it clear i'm not the conquistadors i'm not trying to take your land i'm just trying to get through here to find the land for my family to be on james is yes. not looking to be a conqueror he just wants to find his own piece of land for his family to have Let, let's talk about the endings because this episode is so much about endings let's talk about some specific characters before we circle back around to elsa again let's talk about shay because I think Shay is going to end up being a very controversial wrap-up. How are you feeling how Shay and Thomas leave things, Caroline? How are you feeling about how they wrapped up Shay's story, his actual specific story? Controversial is a good word to describe the situation because Shay, again, told us from the very beginning his intentions. And the entire time we hoped 
that he would change his mind. He told us he this was his last journey. He told us that he had full intention of going to that beach, showing Helen through his eyes, and then being done with this world. At no point did I did I uh, settle that in my heart as being not only just like not okay with it, but like I just kept willing it to change. Like certainly his interactions with different people, whether it be Thomas or Elsa or James or Little John or whomever he was going to be interacting with, something was going to change his mind. I felt so certain. So, sigh. When we actually got to the beach and he's sitting there and he's looking out at the at the ocean even though I saw that gun in his hand, I really didn't think he was going to do it. Even when I saw the hummingbird come and I thought hummingbirds are not commonly found at the beach, I thought, okay, is this like the little the little sign of life, the little energetic hummingbird that's like, don't do it. There's still a lot to live for. Like, look at all the all the beautiful things and all the unexpected things in nature. And then he does it. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, you know, I... We love this character. We loved everything about who he could have been. And I felt like I didn't get my arms completely around him before he was gone. What did you think? Did you expect that gun to go off? I didn't. I was, I, I jumped when it, when he did it initially. And I, I rewatched it like three times just to make sure I wasn't, confused because when the hummingbird shows up i took it as helen is acknowledging him having just spoken to her but then i imparted to it all and also saying like he's fulfilled his promise like he doesn't need to die now he fulfilled the thing he set out to do to honor her to show her the beach and to let her live so why why you don't need to end it like you found other things i thought i thought you found other things to live for on this journey your relationship with elsa i mean listen this this clip this is their goodbye clip i have clips of all the goodbyes this is the goodbye clip between elsa and shay i hope you prove them all wrong hope you laugh about this in 20 years laugh at all of us for doubting you well, if I can't, come meet you on the beach. I'll save you a spot. Now, listening to that, I'll save you a spot on the beach of death makes total sense, right? If I, if I can't yeah. outlive them, then I'll come see you on the beach and we can stare out, you know, you can, I can take one eyeball and Helen can take the other eyeball and we can stare <laughs> at the beach together. Well, and hold on. So did that make you think? I thought the first go round, I thought the hummingbird was Helen. Me and then too. the second go round, I felt like the hummingbird was Elsa because she said, meet you on the beach. And it seemed like mm. Elsa was better represented by this little flitting hummingbird with all this energy and so colorful and so bright and so out of place on the beach. Rules don't apply to Elsa. I mean, Jean Rules says don't that. apply. She does her own damn thing all the time. And she's lived a life like no other. So why wouldn't she be a hummingbird on a beach? The most unexpected of places. I love that. I love that. I hadn't thought of it. I That makes so much sense. That makes so much sense to me. And, and obviously with him taking his life. Then because if Elsa was the only other thing for him to live for, then she's gone too. He's lost his daughter. He's lost his wife. He's lost his surrogate daughter. Maybe mm -hmm. his story really is done. And you know what the other foreshadowing I had? this little moment do you remember it was i think two episodes ago when i groused 
about why would they have this adult man say, I'm going to go where you go to Elsa. Why would they say that? That seems so silly to me. Remember, I was angry about it. I was like, that's so ridiculous. Why would this man say, I'm going to follow this teenager? I remember. I it disagreed with so you. It seems so silly. But now looking at this... If that's Elsa flitting around on the beach, giving him the sign, I'm gone. He said, I'm going to go where you go. And so then he makes the decision to go ahead and go through with it. To me, I was like, oh, I think that was foreshadowing. I wasn't supposed to pick that apart as like an older man following a teenager. <laughs> it was like a total rethink. We'll all meet in our heaven, you mm -hmm. know, because heaven is different for everyone. So, And I'm going to follow you. I love that because, and it also makes sense. Like, I like this idea that because he would have shown because he escorts we didn't get to see this but we we know he escorts margaret and little john to paradise valley we using the wagons right they they had to go behind because they had to take the wagons because little john wouldn't have been able to make the ride on horseback that was the reasoning for splitting them up right so he knows elsa has died so i like the site but then it takes him x number of time to get all the way to the beach whether it's in oregon or whether it's in california wherever the the beach is specifically that he's sitting at it takes him the year jump i like this idea that hummingbird elsa was periodically flitting around on the beach like waiting for him you know this idea like she coming in like checking her like little hummingbird wristwatch and being like oh she's not here yet i'll come back and check on him mm -hmm. I, I love it you've blown my mind i i <laughs> i am i am fully invested in this theory though i think it makes so much sense because the rules don't apply to her and it is fucking weird to see a hummingbird at the beach and his eyes it, they're so full of wonder when he sees it right he's so like what well it goes from confusion right it's yeah. confusion to like joy and almost. uncertainty right like am i gonna do this it's kind of the gun is just kind of laying on his lap and i mean i fully felt that he was there with helen looking through you know his eyes she was enjoying the beach and and then this little flitting, energetic little thing comes along, catches his eye. His eyes light up like, oh, my God, this is a sign. And then he decides to do this. Oh, I my love Lord. It. I love it. One, <laughs> one of the themes of this episode, obviously, is death and, and how we deal with death and what does death mean? How do we contemplate death? And Elsa, in a vulnerable moment with her father, talks about her biggest fear about death. All those people from here don't speak our language. Don't know anything about this place. Risking their lives over rumors and dreams. Rumors and dreams built this whole world, honey. Every inch of it. I want to know my greatest fear about dying. It's being forgotten. And I can't understand why, because I won't be here to know anyone forgot me. What a silly thing to scare me. Nobody's gonna forget you, Elsa. And you ain't dying. You should be dead. But you pay about as much attention to the rules of nature as you pay to mine. You look at me like I'm dying? I look at you for what you are most important thing to me on this planet. That comes with a lot of worry. Because I can't replace you. Even a year later, 
this man that Elsa only knew for six months on a chaotic journey north across the country still remembered in, in hummingbird form. He didn't forget her. She wasn't forgotten. And and I love this idea contemplating this is Coco, right? Where yes. our, our, our souls will remain on the earth. We will remain as long as someone remembers us. We place so much importance on being remembered when really she's right. It's silly. We're dead. Who, how do we know? <laughs> we don't know if anyone remembers us. But still, I, I'm, as I'm sitting here, I, I'll tell you, it's my biggest fear. If my son or my loved ones ever forgot me, I would be crushed, but I'll never know. I think that people also have that feeling of purpose when you're here on Earth. Like, we're here for such a short period of time. You have to make your mark. If you feel like you didn't make an indelible mark, that no one will ever forget you, that somehow you failed. Like, you didn't do what you were supposed to do. For Elsa herself, the way that she lived her life and that she was so wild and so free and so just, like, accepting everything that came in, the good, the bad, the ugly, she took it all in and processed it all. Like, she didn't she didn't protect herself or hide herself from anything. So she felt all the highs and lows. She got married. She had the death of a lover. She, you know, she <laughs> became a warrior. She she learned how to do so many things that ultimately when they were saying like she's lived more life than we have, I, I mean, I felt that for as young as she was, she'd had a life. I've lost a daughter too. Tell McComey will blame herself. I think it's your fault for giving her so much rain. Maybe it is your fault. But I'll say this. I've watched this girl for the last six months, and she has outlived us all. I'm 75 years old, and she has outsmiled me. Out love me, out fought me. <laughs> She's outlived me. She's outlived all of us. I, I hope someone, when my time comes, can say that I out smiled them, out loved them, out fought them, outlived them. I, what what a beautiful eulogy to give before she's even passed away. And true on so many counts. And now I do want to point out we're doing the thing <laughs> that everyone does when someone passes away. <laughs> we have our conversations, you know, on recording here. So we can go back and be like, why are, remember all the things we said about Elsa, how she can be frustrating and she would wander away and was the narration too much, all that. And we are 100% canonizing this child now. You know, now she's the Saint Elsa who just lived such a beautiful life. And yet, you know, we went through all these episodes with her being like, oh, girl, like, I don't know if it's too fast to move to Sam. What are you talking about? Things are beautiful in a tornado. Why are you making out with that man? Like, we had our frustrations with her. But, you know, she's getting the full sainthood happening now because once you look back on all of it and you know her life is going to be so short, then suddenly making out in a tornado is like, girl, just go for it, whatever. You're going to be dead in like, you know, a couple weeks. So just do your thing. Right, exactly. Why begrudge her anything? The beauty and the burden of being human is when we get the gift of hindsight. You know, we get to look back on her life and be like, woo, she lived a chaotic life. But you know what? You know who never judged her and who, other than just feeling selfish about losing her? James. 
James doesn't have to worry about going back and and being like, well, I said some harsh things about her. He was her rock from the moment she jumped over the the train railing and ran to him in the first episode, literally Mm -hmm. until her dying moments. She was the relationship. He was her blanket. She was. Mm -hmm. He was her blanket. That maybe when she said, "You be you be the blanket." That, that hit my my heart as a as a parent who devotes so much of my time to my kid and thinking about whether he's okay and whatnot the father daughter story which is a father child story really hit me hard watching james sob so much in this episode watching him deal on the front lines really got to me in a way that i didn't expect but also didn't surprise me I did find myself wondering at the end of the episode, there is very little interaction between Elsa and Margaret in these final times. At least final, there's very little on-screen moments between Elsa and Margaret as mm-hmm. as they're preparing to say goodbye to her. Did that bother you? Did it surprise you? Are you okay with it based on what their relationship was? I'm okay with it because I think it's important that you qualify that by saying on screen because we did have little nuggets that just let us know that these were happening in the background. Like finally having Faith Hill herself sing on <laughs> on camera. Like that was amazing. Having Margaret sing lullabies to Elsa quietly in the background while the actual scene was was James and Shay talking little moments like that like you knew what was happening and you knew that she had done this probably every night you know since all of this happened so there was like these implied quiet moments these these implied quality times between each parent with her that while we didn't see it all I'm very comfortable feeling like Margaret had a lot of time with her as well the only things for the kids not for you. She promised me she'd sing at my funeral. And then she made me promise she'd die first. So, got a horse traded out of my song. <laughs> Women will strike some tricky bargains, won't they? I've never come out on the winning end of one yet. During the war, I got a telegraph from my wife that said she was taking another lover and leaving with him on Friday. It was Monday when I got the telegraph. I got my sword real goddamn sharp to slice that son of a bitch and rode for two days straight. (laughs) When I got there, she ran out of the house and tackled me in a hug. Said she read that the rebels were in Pennsylvania and she dreamed that I was going to die on the battlefield of Gettysburg. That dirty little liar saved my life. I'm laughing to myself because I'm thinking, Mike, do you know a girl like this who would do something like this? <laughs> I do. I do. I podcast with her a lot. Oh, my God. Could you not, like, exactly see that scenario where it was like, so I wrote this telegram. Right. Well, it's also, I mean, he also presents it like the most classic country song ever. You know? Right. Right. Like, got a telegram on Monday. <laughs> Friday, she's going to go with her lover. Listen, we need more Sam Elliott laughing, by the way. He just cut right to my soul when he laughs in that clip. He's like, oh, that dirty little liar. <laughs> you know? Like, she saved my life. You know, oh, wives are tricky. Caroline, wives are tricky. Women are tricky. Yeah. But you know what? The love between him and his wife in those couple sentences 
that she knew he would ride for two days straight. She knew he would come right away to get in the middle of this situation. For as little as we really learned about Shay and his family, really, we knew how much he grieved her, but we didn't really know really their relationship. That little story told me everything about about how they they played you know like what their romance was like man I just mm, I was all in again why it hurt my heart to see the ending for Shay the way it was it was like damn you know yeah but now he gets to be with her I mean I, I'll tell I you at the, at the end of the day the only thing I'm unhappy about truly unhappy about with Shay's story is the Shay Thomas relationship you and I have been not happy about the direction of this relationship, I think, for episodes. I don't want to speak on your behalf, but I, I think that's accurate. You and I have, have have had problems with what we thought was going to be a core relationship of the show completely either being dropped or kind of betrayed and disintegrating. And this episode had zero resolution between these two. Zero I resolution. I am completely confused if there were scenes that were left on the cutting room floor, and that's why we ended up with such an anemic ending for these two men. I mean, we came in with them. They were partners. They were businessmen together. They had had this storied past. They understood each other at this level that they could speak to one another in these like blunt ways, but kind of like cut to the core and kind of laugh about it. But but say what each other needs to hear. For that to just evaporate in place of the love story between Thomas and Noemi, I told you this a couple episodes ago, I appreciate the Noemi story, but I didn't need that as much as I would have rathered Thomas and Shay complete their story together. However, having said all that, the only way that Shay gets to complete his story, and especially if you're okay with how that went, is to have that splintering of Thomas and Shay. I would not have wanted it to be in a fight. I would not have wanted it to be with any harsh words. So if our choices are, in order for Shay to complete this mission that that we were told all along he was going to complete, him and Thomas had to go on separate paths. I'm glad they did it amicably, because otherwise I would have felt like Thomas never had to know. You know what I'm saying? Like it all, we all just left cool with the situation. For all the stories that they wrapped up in the complete way in which they wrapped it up. I mean, they took the time to show us pioneers being murdered and raped to death that we don't know the names of. I feel like they could have spared a handshake of Captain, thank you for everything. You know, this is where we part ways kind of thing. Even at the Native American camp, do something about it. Because honestly, these the last interaction these two have is cutting off Joseph's leg. The last interaction before that is this clip. Wait, wait, we go with you. Show me your leg. Show me your leg. You can't drive. You can't walk. She can't drive. How am I supposed to take you with me? I'll drive it. They're gonna die. Then they die. They're free people now. That's what they chose. Ain't my job to tell you what to drive. 
I mean, amicably, sure. I guess they're amicable while they're cutting off Joseph's leg. But this is not how I want these two to end their interaction with Thomas standing there while his woman and his best friend for X number of years fight about the fucking immigrants and who lives and who dies and who tells their story. Come on. It's the it's the whole the world doesn't end in, you know, a, a bang. It ends in a whimper. Like it felt like that. Like they just it just fizzled out like they just kind of walked away from each other with without any animosity they just went their own ways and i i do want to point out though in that leg scene thomas most certainly takes leadership role there and in fact tells shay no we're gonna do it this way because it'll heal better that was a big shift between the two of them and it was quiet shay immediately you know relents to yeah okay do it that way then it was that shift of power but you're 100 percent right i could have just done with a head nod Going two different ways and just a head nod. I could have taken even that. But just to skip a whole scene where, like, we don't even know the second they kind of went different ways. Like, we didn't even see that. That, it did feel very unfinished. There's, like, at least 35 minutes, I think, of the episode left when they cut off Joseph's leg. They're still traveling with them up until they all get to the crow camp. It's just, it's just kind of baffling to me. Maybe you're right that there is stuff left on the cutting room floor. For, I mean, go back and listen to the interviews with LaMonica Garrett and with uh, with Sam Elliott. This yeah. is supposed to be a core relationship of the show. And in the end, you know what, guys, it wasn't actually very important at all. It really wasn't. If you hadn't been told that, the, the way that we were in all the interviews, and we just watched this go, we just would have been pretty cool with Thomas just sort of like, you know, it's like best friends. And then, you know, one one of them gets a girl and goes off and starts hanging out with her. There, she didn't have any hissiness about that. That, again, could have happened. That I'm so glad didn't happen. Well, I'm so glad there was never there- any there is a little animosity between Noemi, though, and Thomas and, and uh, Noemi and Shay in that clip that we just played, though. But not like you threw me over for a woman. Well, like, no, not yeah, that sure. Yes, 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 crap yes. That could have easily happened. Right. You know, no bro like you code mentioned that, breaking or anything like that, right? Well, you mentioned that back with Ennis and, and Wade that like it could have been you know that type of situation over there. So they stayed away from all of that kind of stuff, right. which I'm glad for. Um, but you're right, God, any any <laughs> acknowledgement of one another at the end would have felt like something. And at the end of the episode, at the end of the uh, 65 minutes of watching this episode, it's the only thing that bird in my side in a did not like kind of way. It was the only storyline that it, that it has been nagging at me as it feels like a hangnail. It feels very undone, and it's the only one, and so maybe I should be thankful that it's not more. But because the show began by telling us that this is an important thing. This is a guy who stands in the field and watches his friend contemplate suicide every morning and brings him back from the brink. That's who these two were. And we don't even get a fucking handshake or a head nod. Uh, Thank you for being an important part of my life since the fucking Civil War 20 years ago. Come on. It's not like the Civil (laughs) War was a year ago. The Civil War was 18 years ago. Well, then let me ask you, were you satisfied with Thomas and Noemi's ending and and the way that they went ahead and wrapped that up? Yeah, putting Shay aside... Yeah, I loved it. I mean, I like Thomas and Noemi. I'm happy for them. I've been a fan of the Thomas and Noemi storyline, except for except to the degree at which introducing a love interest for Thomas alienated or took away or otherwise diminished showing us the Thomas and Shay relationship, which I think screen time wise, it absolutely did. If I put that aside, 
Yes. I'm very happy that these two got to live their dream. I would have traded out the conversation between Thomas and Noemi about the boys not talking very much to Noemi for a conversation between Shay and Thomas. I could have skipped the you're the precious egg conversation for any type of conversation between Thomas and Shay. A hundred percent. But since you brought it up, let's listen to it and and talk about because I'm not sure if Thomas is just being nice to her here or if if what he's saying is uh, legitimate. I haven't spoken since their father died. Since Texas. She can get him to shut up. He talked to you. I want to die. Ask about what's this sign and this animal. What's the Oregon line? They won't talk to me. For months. Guess I blame you too. I ain't blame. They just don't know what to say. After all they seen you go through. It's the journey that keeps them from talking with you. To them, you this this John Egg. They terrified it's gonna break. They talked to me because they couldn't care less if I break. I think she's got the right of it. I think the kids blame her, uh, or to the extent that kids are processing death and kids can process death and they need to assign blame. My gut instinct is if they haven't said, and I didn't don't think we realized this, that the kids have not said a word to her since Texas, since her father was killed in the Claire Mary Abel uh, raid, or the Mary Abel raid that then Claire killed herself, um, which is when Noemi's husband died. It is am I being too cynical here, too hard on her? Is Thomas being is Thomas got the right of it, you think? Maybe it's the hindsight thing. Like, as she was living it, she was feeling like it was blame. But looking back, maybe they were so uncertain what to say to her to begin with that it was one of those things where, you know, you didn't say something in the first hour and another hour goes by. And before you know it, the whole day's gone. You didn't say anything. And like, it's not like they meant to or that they're angry with her necessarily, but just they're little kids. And and apparently she wasn't doing much to try to explain death or grief or anything with them. Like she was just sort of like leaving it out there. And turns out they were getting what they needed through Thomas asking all these questions and having all these conversations. So it's not like if you look at it from their POV, it's not like they were sitting there silent all day. They actually were having all these conversations. I don't want anyone, I don't want you or anyone to think I'm blaming her for the kid's reaction. But it seems to me if I'm her, I'm thinking the same thing that they don't talk to me because they blame me i get why she has that point of view i'm not saying she obviously she's not responsible <laughs> fucking claire and her dumbassery yeah. was responsible for noemi's death and all of the uh, husband's death and all of those deaths that day uh with uh, the bandits but from her point of view i totally get why and 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 what do you do like i'm barely struggling to stay alive i'm learning how to fucking shoe horses and water them and stuff and i don't know how to take talk to my kids through grieving failure on all sides i guess also weird that 
Thomas hasn't mentioned, hey, I don't see you talking to your kids a lot. I talk to them constantly. They've been together for six months now. I, I talk to them constantly. <laughs> they don't seem to chat with you ever. That's weird. We're just learning about that now, six months in. Well, I do think that, you know, our assessments of what relationships should look like and what is going on on the screen across the board is different. When she asks what's going to happen between us once we get to Oregon, I was like, man, that's still on the table. Like, y'all still haven't talked about that? Like, right. Maybe she just you know? needs to hear it again, though. Sometimes we just need to hear that the person that we in our heart believe is going to be with us, and maybe we just need to hear them say they're going to be with us. You know, that kind of reassurance when you come into a crossroads. I agree. And and obviously, that is the end of the journey. So I guess there is an, an a question mark of like, so do you go back to Texas? Like, what are you doing? Right. You know? It all becomes much more real when you're here now in Montana in a stone's throw versus when you're in the, you know, Hell's Half Acre, you know, or at the Trinity Rock where the bent over tree weeps like a woman over a fucking rock or whatever it was at the Trinity River way back when. <laughs> You know, it's much more real now when you're when you're sitting on the Bozeman Trail. I was a little surprised that, that in the end, Thomas and Noemi left Montana and continued on to Oregon, presumably in the spring summer of, of 1884. Did that surprise you that they settled in Willamette uh, Valley, Oregon, or and that they didn't stay near the Duttons, the only other kind of established family that they would have known uh, in this in this desolate wilderness? Yeah, it did surprise me. It's something I want us to put up on the bulletin board as like a, is this location going to come up again? Is this somehow more meaningful than we're getting right now? Because it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Why wouldn't you be like the next grouping over? Like I would be the next staked area next to the Duttons. Why wouldn't you? (laughs) You know, there's kids to play with. There's fellow people to like share resources with and all kinds of stuff. Help build. There's a lot of building. (laughs) I, yeah. yeah, a lot of building going on. Uh, yeah, it, you know. So I would have thought so, but I, you know, I'm gonna. But let's put a pin in it. Let's not say there's no reason behind it. Maybe there is. We just don't know yet. I will. I will say because Willamette, when they when they mention Willamette Valley, and it actually gets mentioned twice in this episode. It gets mentioned here. And it gets mentioned by Elsa when she's pondering the cowboys, which we're not up to that point yet. But so Willamette Valley, it, it I I had come across it when I was doing research at the start of the show. Um, Willamette Valley was 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 marked as the quote-unquote promised land of flowing milk and honey it was the end spot for people coming off of the oregon trail uh it it, it remains to this day like a major like productively an agricultural area things grow there it is a verdant valley so maybe they had just talked about oregon for so long and because it had this reputation for being a place where you could make a go of things it wasn't like Montana, where no one knows anything about Montana, people knew about Willamette Valley. It is where the pioneers went to. Um, so uh, why they went there? Maybe because it was what they had on their vision board the entire time. But they told us that they were in Willamette Valley, which I agree with you. Maybe that comes up uh, or becomes important later on. Well, who knows? I mean, let's pretend for like a hot second that the Duttons do end up somehow giving up some of the land or something back to Broken Rock, well, would it be crazy if Duttons end up going to the Willamette Valley? Like, what if something else happens here? You know, I don't know. I don't know. I'm just like leaving everything on my big bulletin board as like, who knows? Why did we have to know exactly where Thomas was? Pick A or B. Okay, B. 
All right. Let's uh, take a listen. It was a hell of a thing riding with you. It was a hell of a thing riding with you. When I wasn't a day on this drive, I was prettier than you. You always be the one that got away out. Come, you gotta be pretty damn good looking to think the one you never had got away from you. <laughs> Go back to Texas, you pretty son of a bitch. Ma'am? Go back to Texas, you pretty son of a bitch. That's what we wanted to hear between Thomas and Shay. <laughs> Go back to Texas, you pretty son of a bitch. Like, I wanted to hear all of that. This was my happiest moment in the entire episode. This, that one exchange that we just listened to was the time that my heart was truly happy this entire episode. I agree. It was so fulfilling and it was so lighthearted and sincere. They earnestly cared about this woman and she really learned so much and enjoyed her time with them. It was so genuine and just funny. And oh, it's exactly what the Cowboys needed to be the whole time. And they did it. They completed their journey completely. In, in 1883 and in Elsa's world, when you're dying, happy moments cannot be sustained for long. And so now we are going to talk about the unmarked graves of the abyss of the Oregon Trail. What do we think happened to these cowboys? I wondered what became of them. Wondered if they staked their claim in Wyoming and built sod houses, bought cattle, and tried to scratch a life from this place. Perhaps they fought the winter and braved their way to Oregon, laying stakes in the emerald fields of the Willamette Valley. But I'd seen too much of this world, knew too much about the nature of man, to think either would be their future. Another future awaited them, and it lay in the abyss of unmarked graves along the Oregon Trail. Why can't we just say that they did go off to the Willamette Valley? Maybe they're, maybe they're ranch hands for Thomas and Noemi over in the Willamette Valley. <sighs> I, I really wanted to just leave it at that they rode off into the sunset. Right? We didn't need this unmarked graves <laughs> bullshit, no, Elsa. I, that panoramic kind of view of like, you know, of them just riding off along the plains. I was like, beautiful. Leave it at that. And she's like, but they probably perished and it was terrible. <laughs> like, no. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if this was SNL, this would be a Debbie Downer stick. You know, like, yeah, maybe they went to Willamette Valley, but they probably died in the abyss of Armor Graves along the Oregon Trail. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, oh. in my head and in my heart, they rode off into the sunset and everything was okay. You know, who did not ride off into the sunset, Caroline? Oh, geez, so many. The rest of the immigrants, those traitorous pioneer separatists. They met tragedy, and tragedy is contagious. To survive the frontier, you must learn to recognize those who won't and be weary of their doomed decisions. They are to be avoided at all costs because their fear is tragedy's closest cousin, and tragedy is contagious in this place. Another contagion bookending at the end of the episode. 
It was so eerie the way that they shot that Mike with the with the older man mm-hmm. leaning against the wagon with his eyes open, like alive and awake and witnessing all the I think horror. he was. I think he was like dying and watching uh, as he was dying. But yeah, uh, like for me, it was just like it was our little surrogate like audience member sitting there just watching this horrible situation go down. When that woman tried to run away and they shot her, I was like, why? Why? Let her go run off into the wilderness. What harm can she do to you? Like, leave her alone. You just raped her. Do you have to shoot her too? Like, what oh, is... Leave her alone. Crazy. But you know what? But of course, because the, the this land hates you and this land will kill you. Tragedy is contagious and carelessness is contagious. And these immigrants, the entire trip, if not for James and Thomas and Shay keeping them alive against all of their natural instincts to kill themselves, these guys would have never even made it this far. It's laughable when he says, we can make it to Oregon without you, he says to Shay, and Shay's like, have at it. I'm over it. Real strong, whatever vibes from Shay there, but I get it. These guys are thankless. I mean, he's saying, I'm keeping my promise to you. I'm just changing how I'm keeping it, uh, by meaning I'm trying to keep you alive, dumbasses. <laughs> and they're just like, no, no, we're, we're going to Oregon. They can't even make it out of Wyoming. They're dead. You know, again, though hindsight and whatnot i mean we said the whole time why can't shay just understand that you know they don't know what they don't know and then now by the end i swear to god we're all frustrated we're all shay we're like fine you know what fucking go whatever you're gonna do just go already i'm tired of having this debate with you you exhaust me I've spent six months of my life. I'm never going to get back. I just want to get to the beach with my my wife and my hummingbird. And you guys are just, just I've had enough. Just go. I'm cool. Go. Yeah, but but again, I, I mean, a credit to Taylor taking the time, wrapping up the story. No one's sitting here going to wonder what happened to the rest of the pioneers. Don't worry about it. None of them made it out. None of them made it anywhere. <laughs> They're all you know what? dead. Uh, oh. it- Taylor told us from the beginning, this journey is going to be insane. And they said, they said standing in the Pinkerton office, like most of you guys are going to die. You're not going to make it. Joseph was the only one that showed the wherewithal to make this journey. And guess what? He actually did it. Were you surprised that Joseph and Riza were even still alive at the start of this episode? Did you have, did that give you hope that maybe they would make it? The fact that they did not begin this episode dead because I, we left last week and I begin this episode dead. Well, I thought at the end of last week. Everyone, I mean, take like, your places. You're dead. <laughs> I, well, because we didn't see them. I was like, well, you know, maybe they died. They did not look in great shape, especially Riza. I was surprised to learn that she was still hanging on after even a couple of days since the end of last week's episode. Do you remember last episode we were discussing predictions? And I said, I felt like there was going to be all for a gruesome medical procedure because it was important to show the audience how medieval this surgical type yes. move would be. Right. We thought it was going to be Elsa, surgery for Elsa. But no, yes. I didn't. Oh, no, that's I right. Yes, yes, yes. I'm was, sorry. Yes, right. I right. said it was going to be someone else because they needed to show the justification for James and Margaret to just resign themselves that they wanted her to die without ripping her open, without having a surgeon rip her open. And because this was all going to be so gruesome, keeping Joseph alive in order to show how horrible a medical 
treatment would be for someone at this time. And now this was an appendage, not like for Elsa where they would be ripping open her torso. This was so disgusting. I had to look away so many times. I watched the episode several times. I kept looking away. I was hiding my eyes. I was muting it at some points to be like, maybe this time I can just see it, but I can't hear it. Other times I can hear it, but I can't see it. Like, I don't think I've actually watched it seeing it and hearing it all at once it was so gross like i couldn't my stomach just went like so what do you think was that successful in justifying the dutton's decision to not proceed with medical intervention from a surgeon well i have in my notes here if you're playing pioneer bingo you can now cross off leg amputation from your from your card but no you're 100 percent right this is this is the reality and again i give all credit to taylor he wanted to tell an honest story, and the honest story is not a pretty roses, you know, smells like roses story. The story is sepsis. The story is people die in the carriage while you're sleeping next to your loved one. I mean, when he rolls over and he finds Reese's eyes open and she's left this, you know, and she's passed away, my heart broke for him. But also, of course, that's how that story is going to end. When they cut off his leg and I watched it, I made myself watch it. I felt like I owed it to Joseph and I owed it to the story to watch it. You know why the scene works and why it's a genius scene? Because they don't omit anything from the moment they decide to amputate his leg we watch the whole thing basically in real time except for the drinking believe that knife going into his skin but but it, it, but it, they said like the you table. know me you right. know me. oh no oh no i know there is no way i assume you had jack watching this for you and giving you <laughs> cliff notes jack is my son you guys so that's extra funny <laughs> like jack just tell me when it's over so. i could not when i was like i know okay i understand tv i understand special effects caroline this is a fake leg you know you understand squibs you understand like all kinds of things about setting up little bloodlines this is all and i was like nope can't do it can't do it i mean they they take you through the whole thing from him getting drunk and talking about his ptsd from the franco-prussian war which what joseph was a soldier in the franco-prussian war like he has ptsd he knows about the screams overcoming the bombs wow what a development for joseph here at the 11th hour when he gets super stinking drunk all the way through holding him down and going into detail about how they all have to hold down a wrist and put their weight into it and talking about how they're going to cut it and and looking at James and say he's going to try and buck you off his leg when he wakes up and do we make him unconscious like the detail they went through drew you into it and so when they begin to cut and then they they cut off the leg and then they throw it into the grass and they say bury it so he doesn't wake up and see his leg all of it it's so visceral i felt like i was there i felt like i was supposed to be holding down one of his his other leg or his wrist or something i felt like i was around that campsite which and then they add in Elsa coming out right afterwards and being yeah. a little delirious drunk, being like, right. "Are we in Montana? Like, what's up? I'm hungry." <laughs> She's like, "I'm glad I didn't get shot in the leg." Yeah, <laughs> it's like, oh, what a girl. Weird, yeah, what a weird com- like comic relief break. But it also was so necessary. Like, I I laughed much harder than I should have, but. It was I had felt like I had just gone through some kind of like Civil War battleground like medical procedure, like yeah. watching it. And it, it was it was horrific, but it was so well done. And it was important. It was important to shut down all the haters who were like, why don't they just take her to get medical care? Get her in front of a surgeon and let's let's clean this situation up. No, guys, it would have been alcohol and a bullet to bite on and then just cutting open your torso like it would have been insane so 
I'm glad they showed it, but it was as disgusting as it needed to be. <laughs> now, I think a lot of people were probably going to be surprised to see that Joseph is still alive in the year jump and, in fact, is setting out to build his house. They don't say where, which makes me feel like he's probably near the Duttons, uh, that they don't give a distance, that they don't give a location marker. It makes me feel like maybe he's in Paradise Valley, too. Surprised he's still alive, Caroline, you know, that he doesn't take his life the same way Shay does when he gets to where he's going. Maybe not take his life, but just surprised that, you know, again, infection or something else didn't get him. You know, I mean, now, you know, he when he was a two-legged man who was healthy and able to run away and do all kinds of stuff, he still got bit by a snake and managed to get injured in other ways. So now looking at him, I'm like, wow, I mean, now you're doing this even with less. You don't even have a helper. You don't have your wife anymore. So it's not even like you have anyone looking out for you or, or helping in any way. So I was super impressed. And uh, to be honest, we watched this the first time with screeners. I didn't see the one year later portion on the screen. So when I rewatched <laughs> it, when it actually aired and I saw one year later, I was like, oh, my God, he like made it this long. Like that was actually a surprise for me that it, it was a whole year later. He wants to honor Reese's memory because, remember, at the end of the day, she really embraced the pioneer spirit. That was really the last arc for her after after all of the trials and tribulations that they went to. Remember, they were used as bait and she screamed at him. Where is it? What is this place? Where are you taking me through all of that? At the end of the day, she really embraced the pioneer spirit. You know, she, he told her, you could be the cowboy. I'll drive the wagon. She was really the one who seemed more into this at the end of the day. Here it is, though. She's gone and he has the wedding rings, right? He's he's still holding on to hers. He's taking his off and he's going to work. And and I my feeling is it's that the the drive to honor her memory and to make it come true this dream this american dream remember she says to him we're not german anymore we're american now i feel like that is what's propelling him and i give him all the credit in the world i feel like he's going to be building that house forever by himself with one leg with no helpers he's doing it i mean he's going to work and he is a carpenter it is his trade so I, I maybe we get to see that the Duttons come and help him out. Maybe they have a bond and a friendship and a relationship that stays. I, I would love to see that continue on. We do have a handful of episodes, so we're, we don't know where this is going to go. What did you get of the significance of the wedding rings? Am I off base? Am I just am I just being a sentimentalist here? I think partially it seemed like it was like he was ready to move on. You know, like he hadn't staked his land yet. And so it was like there was like that the twofold of like taking off the rings and then staking the land like this is my adventure now alone um, and sort of like coming to some sort of acceptance of that that's sort of where I got you know I guess if another woman settler comes along now he's single well I actually took it more he's a professional and he probably doesn't do his woodworking with a ring on maybe yeah you know, just as professional his profession, he probably wouldn't work and handle wood and, and the hammering and stuff with a ring on. It probably would be cumbersome to his finger. I mean, has this whole time he's been like living in a wagon alone and or like and like hunting and like real curious how this all worked out for well, him. That's, well, well it, it makes Thomas and Shay's conversation about cutting the leg in a certain way because it'll heal better uh, more important. 
the fact that he's still alive a year later and has not given over to infection or to anything else like that or gangrene or something like that. Also, I, I my headcanon is he had to have stayed close to someone. I think it's impossible he did this by himself. So he had to have stayed close to the Duttons or maybe he is in Oregon near Thomas and Oemi. My guess is he's, he's near the Duttons because he threw in with James, right? At the end of the day, when Shay was like, we're going to go to Denver, he was like, no, we'll, I'm following you, James. So my guess is he ultimately, instead of going to Death Beach, decided to stay close to the Duttons, <laughs> would be my guess. I mean, that makes sense to me. And in that spirit, James has the know-how of how to build things. James and Margaret and Little John, as he's getting older, have the ability to actually do things so you combine them together and you actually have skills coming together to help you and it makes sense to have a craftsman in in the mix right to to build this beautiful place right james may know a lot of things but he's ultimately a farmer he probably doesn't know how to build a house whereas joseph probably knows exactly how to build a house and just maybe can't do it maybe not as beautiful a house right 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 i would love to find out that somewhere in the modern yellowstone ranch is a cornerstone yeah. with you know joseph the immigrant you know's like name engraved on it somewhere that'd or something. be pretty amazing actually that would be very very cool all right, well, let's get into the death of Elsa. Elsa's last ride. One, I think the makeup department should submit this episode for an Emmy. They make her look so pale that her entire face, including her lips, are just one pale, chapped color. Devastating to watch as this episode goes on. And then she has that bounce back where she, and then she does have color again. But then watch the scene where they, they zoom in on her face under the tree with jeans. Her, yeah. her lips are all chapped. Everything is just this white color. Oh, oh, I, I felt it. Was it was heartbreaking, the yeah. whole thing. I mean, I know that the both of us as Yellowstone watchers were watching the scene and trying to make connections as we're watching for sure, I know I zoomed back to the pilot episode of Yellowstone because I wanted to compare a father-child death to something. And I knew there was something that I could go see over there. So went over there, and I know you did the same. What did you think when you realized that there were such similarities? Well, I mean, let's listen. This is Let's listen to John Dutton as he cradles his oldest son, Lee. Which is... We'll just, we'll just rest here a bit. We can, we can pick a spot together. Hmm? How's that sound? So things in that scene to pay attention to, you have, you have John saying, let's just sit and rest a little bit. He rests up against the tree. The bird comes, the bird chirps, you know, he listens to it for a while and he finally has to resolve. He wipes his face. He says, okay, so that's 2018. That's taking place. Now let's back up to 1883. And these are the final moments of Elsa and James and Elsa before this clip starts says there, that's the spot. Put me up against that tree. Let's just sit here. Rest my bed. You want a blanket? 
Oh, no. I hit the blank. The scene goes on, and she asks him, what's your earliest memory? And he tells his story, and then she tells the story of her earliest memory was about birds. And and thinking how smart the birds were, because they would peck the wet the wet ground and pull out worms. And then a bird comes, much as a bird comes to, to John and Lee, a bird comes to James and Elsa and chirps, and she says, how smart you are, birds, how smart you are. Very similar. And again, the show has done this a couple of times in important moments. Think of, I'm thinking of James and little John with blooding, blooding the boy and when he kills the deer in the hunting scene early on in, in this season with Tate and Casey and John in Yellowstone. You know, the show has done a really good job mirroring these important Dutton moments. What, when you went back and watched it, what was your thought with watching the similarities between the scenes play out? I thought I remembered the words and I thought I remembered the actions, but the bird was the thing that kind of was like the little like linchpin for me. I was like, okay, I'm totally right. These aren't just like similar scenes. They are like identical scenes. It made my heart happier, I guess, in a way, because I felt like the traditions clearly had been passed down in some way with the Duttons. There was something we talked way at the beginning about sort of like DNA memory, genetic memory, and and all those types of things. And I, I just, I felt like we were seeing all that play out. And I was good with it. You know, I felt comfortable with what was happening because it was familiar. I had seen it before. These actions, these habits, whether they're consciously aware of them or not, are ingrained in them. You know, when Spotted Eagle tells James, you look like a man who plants, this is what he's talking about. He's not talking about corn or wheat or, or, or you know, grass or soy. He's talking about this. When your loved ones die, you will go find a tree and you will hold them and you will cradle them as they leave this earth and you will hear a bird sing and you will be part of this land. Your blood goes into this land, your bodies go into this land, and it all is a cycle. Listening to these two scenes back to back really underscores that and it's it's beautiful. It's just absolutely so well done. It's the kind of thing that draws you into this story, this larger story of the Duttons. It really brings back this idea that it's we're having a storyteller give us this show because a lot of times, you know, you have a writer, you even have a team of writers who are working on, you know, creating all these different circumstances for the characters and blah, blah, blah. But this was like a beginning, a middle and an end of a story that we were experiencing when he can go back and bring in those nuggets from the other show and sprinkle them through. And again, that's just such like a big gift for those of us who have followed both shows. You know, you get that little like, you know, warm and fuzzy, like, oh man, I totally, I see how this worked out and I see how it continued in the family. It's so successful as, as this very short, just 10 episode season and for all intents and purposes, series ending. We have a little, you know, this little bridge we think that's going to happen of just a handful of episodes. But that's all we got with these people was 10 episodes. And we had to fall in love with them. We had to care so much about them. And we had to let them go. I think it was extremely successful. Let's back up because I forgot to ask you this. At the beginning of the episode, when Elsa leads the group and they arrive at the front of Fort Casper, she has that conversation with the unbearded boys about guarding and protecting and they're being very bold and they say we'll protect whoever needs protecting and she kind of scoffs at them and says you should spend some time outside of those walls before you make such a claim and she falls off her horse girl girlfriend <laughs> does so much falling off of her horse in this episode it was devastating to watch did that scene work for you because I, I i think it's meant to convey 
at the end of this life, at the end of this six months of wild living that she has done, she has amassed experiences that are beyond her years, right? That she, that the same way uh, Shay says she's outlived us all, she, she has certain wisdom that we don't normally have at 17 or 18, depending on which script you're reading from uh, Taylor. <laughs> um, did that sentence work in showing us that she does have wisdom and experience. She has real life experience that these guys who may even be her age or older or just younger or around, they're around her same age anyway, completely lack. Absolutely. And I also, I feel like it was a message to the audience as well. Like you think that you could handle X, Y, Z. We should really get out of your comfort zone and go try some things and see how you feel then. Because Elsa, she had to learn on the job essentially. And there were so many menacing things out there that she had no idea she needed to prepare for. I mean, none of us really were prepared for things like water being a problem, (laughs) you know? And so, you know, when you just start off at the most basics, being able to kill you and then you just realize how many things are going to come at you then it is laughable to have these little boys be like we can protect this against anyone it's like you have no idea every single thing out here wants to kill you you know and she says that so many times throughout the series it was a little nod to everybody i think to get out of your comfort zone get out there and go do something uh i want to take you back to the beginning of the series this is a clip that we played back in episode one only because i feel like there's a connection here that we didn't talk about and just talking about ending this journey and and ending this journey and ending Elsa's story. I wanted to revisit it one more time. We weren't poor. We weren't desperate. The road west is filled with failures. Failure isn't what drove him. It was a dream. And the dream is coming true. In the scene we played where she talks about being forgotten, I want to play the beginning of that clip again because I left it in because it relates to that part we just listened to from episode one. All those people from Europe don't speak our language. Don't know anything about this place. Risking their lives over rumors and dreams. Rooms and dreams built this whole world, honey. Every inch of it. I want to know. We really forgot about that part of the story, which was so central in our first couple of episodes. If you go back and listen, if you go back and rewatch episodes one and two, especially James and Elsa and their dreamers, and this is all new and it's an adventure, all, none of the bad shit had happened yet. So it was all shiny dreams. And here we are at the end of this story. This this man is preparing to say goodbye to his daughter who he's watching die. She's she's dealing with her own mortality. She's wondering what death is. And they're still talking about rumors and dreams and how this country, this world is built on people being propelled forward by rumors and dreams. I think it was a beautiful moment. And, and a, again, another real testament to 
what it is to be an American, especially an American in the 1800s. The Americans who built this country from from the East Coast to the West Coast was all built on dreams. It was all built on we had no facts. They had no knowledge. They had no information. They didn't know how to do things. They had a dream. They had an idea. And I love that the show brought it back around and did it in a subtle way. They didn't hit you over the head, but they reminded you this all started because of a guy had a dream when he got home from the war. I think that's beautiful. I, I think it's just a, a, such a great message that they came back around to it, you know, in a nice bookend kind of way before before she was gone. It was also a huge connection between Elsa and James that they didn't share with Margaret. Neither of them shared with Margaret. And so it sort of reminded everybody about how their entire drive and motivation really relied on this not needing to know exactly how the journey was going to go, but just experiencing it, because I don't want to say enjoying it, but experiencing it as it was happening and making decisions along the way to to fulfill your ultimate dream. And that that was okay with James. I mean, it was never really okay with the majority of the people <laughs> around them. But Elsa and him had a kinship because of it. And so I'm so glad that you mentioned it. I'm so glad you brought it back around because it was the ties that bind the two of them. The fact that they could be full of wonder and full of willingness to let the land and nature in general show them the way. Listening to you speak. Also, we have to close the loop on this other aspect too. Think back to the White Elephant Bar, whichever bar they, they were in in Fort Worth in the first episode when Shay and Thomas were trying to recruit James. And he says, I've got a plan. I'm heading north. I'll know the land when I see it. In the end, it was his daughter who picked the spot. James actually, he didn't know the land when he saw it. He knew his daughter would know the land when she saw it. That, again, is beautiful. They are, they are of, of a shared brain, right? This dreamer brain that they share, this bond, literally determines the entire course of the next seven, eight generations of this family line. And it was born out of a guy thinking he would know the spot when he would see it. But really, it was his daughter. I love that. He didn't know how he was going to get there. Not that he knew where they were going, right? Or that he would necessarily pick it. But that he he had faith that somehow he was going to know, like, as it was going, how to handle this. And so because of the circumstances with Elsa, nobody, like, poo-poos this idea that she can pick where she wants to be buried. You know, that's something that not all parents would be completely cool with. They might be like, and I know it seems like, how could you not allow a child to choose where they're going to be buried? But at the same time, if it's not like a good place for everyone else to live for the rest of their lives, some parents might step in there. So the fact that he, as part of that dreamer spirit, was willing to like relinquish his control and say, I'm going to let this whole experience like show me where to go guide me and that included Elsa's illness ultimately guiding them he was okay with that like it wasn't part of the quote-unquote plan but the plan was to let the circumstances guide him and make choices along the way and he would find the right route <laughs> we promise anything let me choose this part <laughs> yeah, honey. <laughs> you choose the spot. 
I, I think you're right. You know, let go and go with God kind of thing is all part of this journey is is part of that is letting Elsa make this determination at the end. He he has taught her what he knows and trust that she will make the decision that he would make in the same spot. And so he can rely on her to do the right thing. And to be fair, James's own wisdom to trust Spotted Eagle and listen to him, it's not like they just went randomly off into the woods. Right, it's not right, right. She didn't divine from the medicine (laughs) tent or going into Paradise Valley. No, he took her to the general location. But then they have that great scene where they're riding through the prairie and she's like, there, go that way, go that way. Like, she starts doing fine navigation once they're in the general area. But you're right, of course. He's using his own wisdom and the sincerity of Spotted Eagle's words like that that sounds like the land i was talking about back in the bar what you're describing paradise there that that sounds like what i had in my head when i was talking to thomas and shay way back when between the two of them you know they had been doing so much of the work you know with the with the cattle and and everything along the way that i don't know in a way james and elsa were sort of like making decisions together in a lot of ways without discussing it i don't mean it like they were having a little co-counsel without mom or anything like that but they were they were kind of experiencing life together that it makes so much sense that they would have been picking this spot together because as much as we would want to think at least in modern days we would want to think oh margaret would be just as much about you know picking the land and where they're ending up and all that stuff but she had very much taken a back seat like i'm just following james and wherever he you know lands is where we're gonna live provided i have a house you know right. this is the, <laughs> this is the conversation about trust from three episodes ago when she when elsa first meets sam remember they're in the tent and they're over they're listening to james and shay argue about going to denver or continuing to go north and margaret says to elsa i have my my opinion hasn't factored into this at all but i decided to trust your father he's got a map in his head i trust him and that's all there is to it like that's the that's the decision i made i i decided to trust him and and guide us to the right spot uh just because again i i feel this is the last chance to talk about it and this kinship and this bond between elsa and James, I think if you asked anyone, what word do you most associate with Elsa, beautiful would be one of those words. Very much. We never highlighted this. I actually don't think I played this clip in episode eight, but we have to remember James stopped and had this appreciation moment when he's riding the broken uh, war horse that Sam has broken in the river for him when he's taking it on his uh, test drive. He has this scene right here. This place is beautiful. I mean, it's four words, but it's powerful. And it's the first time anyone other than Elsa stopped to talk about how goddamn beautiful this land is. And of course, it's her father. They share the same dreamer brain. They see the world in the same hues and the same colors. It's, it, it was a nice moment, and it feels powerful to play here at the end of her life. It feels like an exclamation point. Like every single time she was like, and it was beautiful. Like it just feels like it was like, bam, you know? Uh, Well, you have segued us into the end. We have to talk about death and Elsa's death and heaven. Um, Let's play her final words. I'm trying to figure out the best way to do this. These These are Elsa's literal final words alive that she says out loud. Let's let's play it and then break it down. 
understand it now. Understand what? I know what it is. I'm not scared, Daddy. I don't know that I would ever recover from crying. Uh, I heard that as my child's final words. Whew. What is the <laughs> it there? Is the it death or is the it heaven, do you think? Ooh, see, I think I was going with sort of something bigger, sort of like, you know, maybe like the meaning of life, sort of like the big questions of the universe, the like, you know, like just sort of understanding our purpose here, all that stuff felt like it was all wrapped up in that it, you know, maybe God, you I, know. I, well, so here's the thing. It might, here's my thinking, because the show has always followed the formula of her end voice over tended to book bookend or relate back to her opening voiceover. This was the opening voiceover from how the episode began. The numbing shock of war is behind me now. Pain has taken its place. Hurts to move. Hurts to breathe. The back of my head throbs with every step of my horse. I look at the world through the hazy lens of favor. And somehow see it clear. What is death? What is this thing we all share? Rabbits. Birds. Horses. Trees. Everyone I love. And everyone who loves me. Even stars die. And we know absolutely nothing of it. I edited out for those that are keeping track her trippy little run little rabbit. I felt that <laughs> that didn't really add anything to the clip, but that's why I think that the, the, I understand it and I'm not scared of it. I think she's talking about death and that that's what she understands. And that's why she's not scared of it. Plus then she has the voiceover at the end of the episode where she talks about death. Um, I don't know, but I, I think it's an interesting thing to talk about this idea that clarity comes right before death. Because obviously she feels like she has a clarity moment. That's her final words to her father is, I, I know it, I understand it, I'm not scared. But I'm thinking of Shay too on the beach, seeing it and talking to Helen and then seeing the hummingbird and feeling and looking at his face. And there is some kind of understanding there after a moment of shock. It feels like clarity, right? It feels like a moment of clarity before the end comes. The old man watching the devastation leaning of the, the pioneer as he watches what's happened to the rest of his people and is dying. Clarity, not great clarity, but there's clarity that comes right before death. Yeah. And like, and some sort of just all the fear evaporates and you just be, you know, you're just there and it's happening and you have no control. I think you're just experiencing it for what it is. And that's, that's, I think that like sort of relaxed kind of face that she gets on of just like, okay, so this is it. It's happening. You no longer have to be afraid. You know how sometimes the anticipation of something happening can be so much worse than what it actually feels like when it is happening. Yes, very much so. It feels like that. It feels like all the all the fear and all the anticipation of this moment, it just it just all evaporates and you're just there. 
she feels like she's okay. I, I've been there when someone passes away. It's not always like this loud, you know, scary kind of thing. Sometimes it's just very letting go. Very, I have a very distinct memory of someone close to me passing away and they were talking and then it sounded like they drifted off to sleep, but they passed away. It was just that simple and it was just that quiet and was, it wasn't a loud bang. It wasn't. Or screams of terror or anything right. else. It was it peaceful. It was just it was, quiet. Right. You it know? was your smart bird and then you pass away. Uh, heaven is a concept that the show really never talked about as in a real place. The show, the show became kind of anti-god as it went on right or or elsa's voiceovers became angry towards god and god became a militant presence in their life here we are at the end and it feels like she's made peace with that and so whether she understands death and and the universe or she understands god and the land and her place in it i think i think interpretations in the debate is open and i think there are a lot of good reasons for all of that but let's listen to her concept of heaven and what her heaven in particular would be there is a moment where your dreams and your memories merge together and form a perfect world that is heaven and each heaven is unique it is the world of you. The land is filled with all you hold dear. And the sky is your imagination. My heaven is filled with good horses and open plains and wild cattle and a man who loves me. It is always sunrise in my world, and there are no storms. I'm the only lightning. So this threw me a little bit, I'm to be honest, because I felt like it was too grounded in in life on earth and life on your your regular life to so go back to the relationships that you have as like you know a husband and wife and to go back to you know riding on the horse like there's some parts of that that feels like if your words are this is about your imagination and anything could be anything i own like then i would have rathered like almost like sam and ennis to be changing out as she blinked her eyes or something or both of them be there i mean not to be kinky about it or whatever but wouldn't no, they both it's not be there? Kinky. Like, you see what I'm getting at? Like, that's a very man-made, earth-bound concept of what heaven is, you know, where I was expecting it to be, you know, while, yes, it's paradise, and I get that, the omission of Ennis felt wholly wrong. It did. And I didn't understand that at all. And then I also would have thought that there would have been, like— other parts of her life that would have played out there too. Like, I don't know. People always are like excited to see about like their dogs running up to them or like things like that. Like, I don't know. It didn't seem full enough for me to represent all that she, she would want there. I would have been happier with it if it had just been her with her horse on the open plain and the sky above her and the land below her feet and then just running free. I think it takes away to have Sam there 
and just Sam. If you're going to add another character, I think you need to see Ennis there. I think you need to see little John. She doesn't say goodbye to her brother. I mean, John actually doesn't speak in this episode, but they don't have any, and it didn't jar me as much as the Shay and Thomas did, obviously, but there's right. no goodbye to her little brother. There's no you're be, be you're the man of the house kind of you know like there's no like you're you're you keep take care of mom and dad it didn't even have to be like that dramatic like in terms of like maybe he, you know he's five he can't maybe handle all that but give him a hug i'll see you when we get to the land you go in the wagon with mom and i'm gonna go on horseback with dad and I'll, you know i'll see you there kind of thing something to you're like you're saying like bring to a close their their interactions Maybe this isn't her heaven. Maybe these are her final thoughts of what her heaven is going to look like. Okay. So then it's like the last thing. It's yeah, it's it's these are her last thoughts and not actually her heaven. It's her imagination of what her heaven will look like. Because based on the right now, that makes sense to her. You know, they say your life will flash before your eyes. Well, that's gotta be a highlight reel. And we don't know what that highlight reel is actually going to look like until it's happening so maybe this is more of her last thoughts of what heaven will her heaven will look like because it's personalized for everyone but i imagine if it's her perfect world she's riding lightning like she is sam is there i have to think ennis is there i have to think her dad is there if this is her perfect world where she gets to be a cowgirl living free on the open prairie freedom as she understood it I feel like her dad is going to be there. The guy, he, Sam aside, her father was the most important man in her life. The most important person in her life, I'll say. It's not a gender thing. He was the mm -hmm. most important person in her life when all was said and done. Weird that he's not there riding and you know, all of them racing or something like that. It seemed, it seemed like a weird, it seemed like fan service. Honestly, it seemed like fan service. I don't know. See, I, I agree the with the setup of, people... of like, it would be so much fun to say for her to look down the line and yeah. have it be like James, Sam and Ennis and you know, whoever Margaret. else. Think about when she saw her mother riding on the horse and she was so wowed right. by her. Like and she then was magnificent. her say something like ready, set, go kind of thing, you know, and like watch all of them ride off together. There's something about that that could have been like playful and fun and... And I don't, I don't have like a super duper sense of like heaven. My, my feel is more like souls and spirit kind of feel more than like a physical, you know, I'm riding a horse kind of feel. But I really, I don't know why I was so not expecting just this very earthbound, restricted kind of existence. The, the halfway point, it, for me, it was either there were going to be a lot of people there riding in the the planes because she she wasn't a solitary person she was a social person who right. she wanted to be she wanted to be with wade and ennis and colton and sam and cowgirl and cowgirl and, and herding uh you know cattle and eating buffalo heart and shit like she wants to be doing that with people so in a real afterlife the way she's describing it in her voiceover this seemed like a like an incomplete like like other people should have been like there or sterile or something or right? no one like, should have been there it shouldn't have been just one yeah. other person so that's why i'm saying as we're talking it through i feel like this is her imagination her in her head imagining what her heaven will look like based on her earthly mind when she goes to die Okay. And, and not necessarily, and not necessarily what like your your inner soul, the the your subconscious is going to generate a heaven that is 
different than what your conscious mind maybe is thinking of because it's taking a wider view of your life. It just felt like it was missing Elsa's energy, her excitement, her, you know, all the thing that just makes her so dynamic. It was just missing that. And that felt like utterly wrong. <laughs> like it felt like it should have been amped up in heaven, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I agree. I agree. It felt off to me. It felt, it felt incomplete. It felt incomplete is the right way. It felt incomplete. Sterile is the word that I keep thinking of. Like there just wasn't enough life. That sounds funny in heaven, <laughs> you know what I mean? That didn't bother me because the empty plane and just and just ground and nothing else, no buildings, no obstructions, just just earth to run on your horse sounds exactly like what she would want. But I can't believe it would just be one person with her in her heaven based on who she is, based on how she told this story. Sam was really a blip of her life. And, and so, yes, that's why I'm saying it was the most recent blip. It's recency bias. So I, that's why I'm saying mm-hmm. in, imagination-wise, the guy that you last married, uh, you know, <laughs> is there. It, recency bias. But when you when you actually stop and think, if you're subscribing to your perfect world, I think her perfect world is going to look similar landscape-wise, but feature more people doing cowgirl, cowboy things with her. The amount of people in in all of the different fan groups and on Reddit and on the internet that were the the theories to get her back with Sam, Caroline, it shocks me to my core. The the the, the hurdles <laughs> and hoops that people were putting themselves through to figure out how it could happen. That's this felt like that. It was like, don't worry, guys, you're going to get to see Martinson, you know, since fire again, and you know they're going to have their happy ending kind of thing. And it. It felt false to me the way it was. It's not, it's actually not taking away from the overall enjoyment to me. But when I'm sitting down to analyze it, it, it felt off if it was supposed to be real heaven, real Elsa heaven. So. Everybody is going to miss Ennis. That's, that's the main thing. Everyone's going to say, if you bring in Sam, you have to bring in Ennis or don't bring in either of them. Yes. For me, it should have been Sam, Ennis, and James. That felt right to me, but if if it wasn't going to be at least Sam and Ennis, then it should have just been her by herself riding free, exactly. off, literally off into the sunset. But we have to end when where she's talking about something is beautiful. So uh, let's talk about when she uh, got to meet Death a little. I know Death now. I've seen it. It had no fangs. It smiled at me. And it was beautiful. We're going back to some fang imagery. At the end of the day, death wasn't something to fear. Death wasn't something to be afraid of. Death wasn't something to fight. Death smiled and death was beautiful. And we went on a journey together. Are you much of a Harry Potter fan, Caroline? I'm familiar with it, and and I enjoy all that I have seen. There's a story that comes up in the seventh book. It's a children's story that gets related. It's the tale of the three brothers. And it tells the story, quickly, it tells the story of three brothers who meet death at a river crossing. Death, kind of like the, like a, like the billy goat, you know, gruff kind of thing, says, you can't cross. The brothers best him, and so death grants them each a wish. The one brother wants a, a wand in, in this story that can't be beat. And the brother uses the wand to kill all of his enemies and boasts about it and ends up getting killed while he's sleeping. Someone takes his own wand and kills him with it. 
death comes and takes the brother. The middle brother wants a stone that can bring back the dead because he's selfish and won't let go of them and so wants to resurrect them. And so he turns the stone and he brings back his dead fiance or wife and she is a tortured soul who doesn't want to be back here. It brings him so much grief that the brother hangs himself. He dies and death comes and grabs the second brother. The third brother wants an invisibility cloak so that he can go about the world and hide from death and, and not have to worry about it. Death grants him the cloak. The brother lives out his entire life. At the end of his long life, on his own terms, he takes off the cloak, death comes, and the two of them part as friends. I have thought of that story when listening to her talk, this idea of when we get to choose how we embrace death and we embrace our life and we embrace our mortality, it doesn't make it scary. It makes it something where you can talk about death as someone who smiles at you and it is beautiful and you can part as friends and you can leave this world and your soul is in a good place, not in a tortured place, not in a sad place or a scared place. I don't know. I, there's a piece to it that I found very comforting. Listening to her talk here left me in a very peaceful state about the right way to look at death and embrace death. I don't know how you felt about it. If it was hokey or not, if my story was hokey or not. But yeah, my, my overall feeling was kind of calm and peace listening to her talk here. Our general fear of death comes from that not knowing and feeling out of control, like it's going to come out of nowhere and I don't know what it's going to feel like and I don't know what's going to happen and then I'm just not going to be here anymore and I'm not going to have any say over it. So when I listen to your story, what I hear is that, you know, the last brother had control over when he took the cloak off and that's what made him feel at peace and why they could sort of leave on his own terms, then things could be very um, easy between him and death. And that's how I feel about Elsa, that by picking her spot, by being with her dad, by sort of laying there and experiencing those last moments on her own terms, like he said, do you want a blanket? No, you know, things like that. Like she was doing it the way she wanted to do it. Then that sense of control and that sense of I'm choosing how this is going to go down makes everything feel like this is okay. This is natural. This is a part of the cycle of life. And I'm okay with leaving this way. Um, and that's where death suddenly doesn't become the enemy, you know, but instead you want death to hold your hand and go quietly, right? Like you don't, you don't want it to feel like this big old, you know, like you said, like the sickle in the hood and all that, like, you don't want that. You don't want that fearful kind of imagery. But the idea that that you know, for some people, it would be God or Jesus or something, whatever your religion believes or or not, or just nature in general, you know, you'd be coming back into the dirt and all that stuff. There's something about like being enveloped by death in a way that doesn't feel angry or aggressive or anything, but like you're doing it together. Like we're leaving this world together. That makes it feel okay. And um, and I think that she got to do it on her own terms. And over the course of a, of a long period of time, like you said, she also got to say all her goodbyes. You know, she got to talk to everybody, say everything she wanted to say, have that last ride with her dad. Like she was having a very complete ending. It wasn't a sudden horrific death, you know, and that makes all the difference. 
It makes all the difference. It makes all the difference in her story. It makes all the difference as a viewer for me, anyway. Being okay with the end of her story. No point since I've watched this episode, and I've watched it several times now, or I've been talking about it for over two hours at this point. At no point did I think to myself, "He did Elsa dirty." Elsa's story was incomplete. There was so much more left to tell. I, I feel very at peace. Like, as she's smiling at death in the end, I feel very at peace with how her story finished. I think that Elsa, the character, gave us permission to feel at peace with her mm, death. Yes. When she can say, I'm not scared. She's talking to us. Yeah. I think she's talking to us. And so then once she's talking to us and she says that, then just like I was kind of joking that we made her a saint, we also let go of all of our other expectations. The fact that she didn't give birth to Ennis's baby, the fact that she isn't going to be in the house, in the on the Dutton Ranch, we let go of that at the same time she did. We're, we're not even sitting here being sad about what didn't happen yeah. because she told us, I'm not scared. I'm okay. It's okay for me to go. We're okay for her to go. I mean, that was smart writing, you know, giving us that permission to just let this character go. (sighs) (laughs) You okay? This has been through the ringer, man. And I know a lot of our, our fellow viewers are feeling the same way. A lot of people, I've seen some different tweets out there. I've seen some comments on Facebook, definitely feeling like, you know, did it have to feel like you stuck the knife in and twisted it around on us? It only felt that way because they did such a beautiful job of developing these characters and making us really care about them. You and I watch a lot of TV. We could be in season three, four, five and not feel as deeply as we do about this set of characters because their journey was so difficult and they shared the agony with us every step of the way that no matter how far each character got, there was some sense of like they were successful. They completed some part of the journey that we wanted them to complete somehow we can be satisfied with that at ease with that I, I, you i yeah you said it perfectly you really you really nailed it on the head when people think about this episode and go back and we talked a lot about the room to breathe and how the extra top running time of this episode wasn't spent in shoehorning dialogue or exposition or introducing a ton of new characters or plots or storylines all of that extra time in the runtime was long sweeping shots it was showing you this land that they're crossing and that they're falling in love with it was letting elsa's final moments breathe all of her goodbyes every single clip i played i had to edit down from two or three minutes because there was just silence of people walking up to her or her walking to them Uh, the the long goodbyes the the farewells the when they arrive at the crow camp this was the point that i started this little rant on there's almost four minutes, unbroken, no dialogue. Other than, other than some crow chanting and prayers, there is no dialogue. Now, there are shows that, are, that do this sometimes. There are very arty shows and daring shows that aren't like mainstream, that don't have a lot of eyeballs so they can be a little more avant-garde. But a mainstream show by Taylor Sheridan to be so bold to spend four of its minutes, of its 65 final finale minutes, with no dialogue, just acting, just watching the medicine men and women treat her on screen, put her in the river, bleed the wound, put her in the smoke tent, chant over her. 
that's remarkable. You don't get that in just any kind of TV show. That is bold and that is daring and and it's it, it's beautiful. I mean, not to quote Elsa, but this <laughs> but kind episode, of to quote Elsa. But, but kind of quote episode. One of the features of the show has been how much of a love letter it is to this land. This episode was was like an extra big Valentine on top of that. I'm going to add to that and say, you know, nature has been a character the whole time. Land has been a character the whole time. I think even, and I know you're going to love this, the rites and rituals of the Native American people became its own character, if you will. So even though there wasn't verbal dialogue happening, we were 100% communicating. They were communicating to us what was going on in those scenes, though it was not verbal. We understood what they were doing. And, and again, it goes back to something you and I predicted long ago, that there was going to be some attempt from the Native Americans to help Elsa, and that was going to really solidify the bond that we see later on the Dutton Ranch, that that feeling of respect and and wanting to to work together even when it's difficult to work together they try to work together through all of that i all i kept thinking in the sweeping scenes is there was such a respect and to it, it reminded me of like taking a final bow for at, at the end of a of a awesome broadway show where you allow like each character to come out and sometimes it can be kind of like quiet at first and they come out and you're like there's like this respectful thing and then everyone be like burst out and cheering you know and that kind of stuff there was this whole feeling of like let's all honor the land let's all pay attention to the rites and rituals let's look at the, these beautiful trees let's look at the beautiful sky the mountains that everything like everyone kind of got their bow you know as we were leaving the show and there was something about that that felt so complete and just like respect to everyone who played their part in making the show. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to the Yellowstone Podcast 1883 episodes. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, if you could leave us a five-star review, that would be fantastic because it helps promote the show. And at the end of the day, guys, you know, it was a hell of a thing riding with you. Please also go check out our sister site, Pop Culture Review, for written reviews as well as pictures and little sneak peeks to a lot of the shows that we're covering. Thanks so much for listening. See you in the valley, mama. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.